Good morning, church. Um, as Graham has just announced, I'm reading from Mark chapter 14, verse 26 to 31. Um, under the topic, Jesus foretells Peter's denial. And I read, when they had sung a song, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I, say, I, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows or crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord God, we thank you that you've not left us in this world without a guide. But you have entrusted us with your very word, written and penned by many of your people, but Lord, inspired and breathed ultimately by you through your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, as we come to this word today, that you would fill us with a fresh hunger, Lord, to receive what it is that you're speaking to us. Though this passage may be very familiar, we pray, Lord God, that you would take away the veil of familiarity, Lord, and let us have, Lord God, a childlike spirit this morning towards your word. Father, let us have a hunger and a desire to know you more through what we will see this morning in your word. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The message title for today is The Dangers of Self-Confidence. Now, I might have phrased that in a different way. The dangers of self-assurance would be another way to put it. It's not that there's anything wrong with having a level of confidence in your own abilities. I don't think there's a problem with that. But I think there's a tipping point. It was actually the philosopher Socrates. How many of you have heard of him, Socrates? Socrates was an interesting character. Certainly well worth reading about. And he famously declared that the unexamined life is not worth living. And his famous two-worder was, know thyself. Know yourself. That was the message of Socrates. That is the message of the Stoic philosophers, the Greek philosophers, was know yourself. Now, Peter thought that he knew himself pretty well. Peter actually thought that he knew himself better than Jesus knew who he was. 
Jesus said, you will all fall away tonight. Jesus spoke that to them all. But Peter turned around and said, not me, Lord. Not me. The rest of them, they'll all fall away. In fact, I don't really care if they do, but I won't fall away. You're wrong about me, Jesus. You don't know me. I'll never forsake you. I know my own heart. And that is something that I would never, ever do. You know, if this passage teaches us anything, I believe that it teaches us this, that God's word about who you are ought to speak louder than your own thoughts about who you are. Does that make sense? God's conception of who we are ought to speak louder than our own self-conception of who we are. That means who we believe we are, what we think about when we think about ourselves. God's word ought to speak louder than us, louder than our own convictions about who we think we are. Jesus, of course, said, you will all fall away. But Peter felt confident in himself. He felt convicted. He felt that he could take the heat of whatever was coming Jesus' way. He thought, I could do that too. He was very sure of himself, very confident in himself. But in just a few short hours, we read this in verse 50 of the same chapter. And they all left him and fled. Self-knowledge, knowledge of who you are, isn't a bad thing. In fact, I think we could all do with a bit more of a dose of self-knowledge, but self-confidence is something entirely different. Self-confidence must be guarded against. Self-assurance is something that we want to be careful of, ste- of stepping too heavily on. We're to remember God's word about who we are. We've got to remember our own weaknesses, our own frailties. You see, when Socrates said, know thyself, he wasn't reckoning on the problem of sin, was he? He wasn't bringing the equation, he wasn't bringing sin into the equation. The Bible says that because of sin, even our own self-conception is flawed. Even what we think we know about ourselves, we know imperfectly. Does that make sense? You see, sin doesn't just affect the morals. This is something that the reformers really spoke very clearly on, the doctrine of total depravity. That doesn't mean that you're utterly as depraved as you possibly could be. No, no, no. It just means that sin impacts every part of you, every single part of you, not just your morals, but even your reasoning abilities. That's why when we look at the world today, we can see mankind's broken perception of truth. We see men and women reject the gospel and call it foolishness. Why is that? It's because sin has broken their perception. So that foolishness looks wise and wisdom looks foolish. That's the problem of sin. That is total depravity. It is that the total being is affected by this thing that we call sin. It's all over us. And it's only through Christ that we're delivered from it. But our self-conception, therefore, is flawed. So we mustn't put too much trust in it. We must trust God's word above it. So that's what I think that this passage ultimately speaks to us. 
I think as Christians, we've got to make allowance for our tendency to err. You see, Peter was very confident, wasn't he? I won't do that, Lord. There's no way. I know. I know in my heart. I'm, I can imagine it. I can imagine the situation, and I know what I do. I say, no, I'm, I'm not going to separate from you, Lord. I'm going to stand. I'm going to take whatever's coming your way. I'm going to take it, too. It's very easy to do that, isn't it? I'm sure many of you have had that thought. You know, if a gun was pointed to my head right now, I wouldn't deny Jesus. Many of us have, have had that thought. But imagining the situation and actually living in the situation are two different things. A strong conviction is not the same as a trial lived through. Does that make sense? That they don't weigh the same. I've met many Christians who've had very strong convictions who are no longer walking with the Lord. I've, I've met many Christians that have stronger convictions than I've had in my life, but now deny the gospel entirely. Strong convictions are not the same as actually walking with the Lord. Amen? They oughtn't to be weighed the same. We've got to take God's word above our own concerning our nature and our abilities. You see, today, this is one of the problems in the Western church is that we think too highly of ourselves. Man always has a tendency to overestimate his goodness, to overestimate what he's capable of doing, to overestimate what he will do on behalf of God. But what did Jesus say? You will all fall away. I want you to think about that. The very foundations in Ephesians 2 are what? The, the apostles and the prophets. They all fell away. This church is built upon people who failed Jesus. Let that be a testament to us all. Not to put too much trust in our own abilities, but instead to look to God as our strength. Romans 3, verse 10 to 12, is a, is a passage of Scripture that I think really does do away with the foundation of self-confidence and self-assurance in the flesh. None is righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's a very strong statement written to people in the New Testament is a reminder for us not to put too much trust in our goodness, in what we would do in a given situation, but instead to say, Jesus, I don't know about me, but strengthen me. I don't know what my heart would do in that given situation, but I know that you are strong and I know that you are faithful and I know that your grace is enough for me. I've learned through my own experience walking with Christ now for 25 years, I know it's never wise of me to make bold statements about what I'm going to do for God and how I'm never going to do that thing ever again, Lord, and I'm going to stand for you when everyone else falls. Instead, I've learned instead to say, Jesus, I don't know about me, but I know about you, and I'll trust you whatever comes my way. Isn't it an encouragement to know that, as J.C. Ryle said, let us take comfort in the thought that the Lord Jesus does not cast off his believing people because of failures and imperfections. Amen? If he did, we'd all be done away with. There's no one in this room that would stand. But when we remember that Jesus built his church upon Peter, who denied him not once, not twice, but three times in his hour of need, Jesus still built the church upon Peter and his companions. What a wonderful word. 
Now, after finishing the Passover supper together, Mark tells us in verse 26 that they sang a hymn. Did you catch that? It's a very incidental verse. We maybe didn't think too much about it, but think of this. After the Passover supper, they sang a hymn together. Now, actually, we know, within a reasonable doubt, we know what hymn they actually sung. We know that they sang the Hallel, which is Psalm 115 to Psalm 118. Some say a Psalm 113 to 118. But this is a collection of psalms that were sung together as a hymn at the end of the Passover supper. So we know the words that Jesus sang just before heading out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Isn't that wonderful? Another thought I want you to just take and pause on for a moment is this. Jesus knew every detail of what was about to happen to him, didn't he? He knew with a great deal of clarity exactly what was going to be done to him in the coming hours. Now I want you to think for a moment about what state your soul would be in and what state your mind would be in if you knew everything that was going to happen to you in the entire rest of your life. You knew everything. You knew when it was going to happen. You knew what was going to happen. You knew what people were going to say about you, what they were going to do to you, with a degree of accuracy and a clarity like you know events of the past. Now, what would the state of your mind be like if you knew all that information? How would you live day to day? I don't know how I would survive if I knew that in 24 hours this thing was going to happen to me I don't know if I could eat breakfast the day before. I'd be just freaking out about what was going to happen. This thing coming towards me, I can't change it. I can't stop it. It's this express train of certainty coming down the railroad towards me, and I can't dive out the way. What am I going to do? But Jesus sang a hymn. Jesus sang a hymn as he faced down his own murder. Isn't that incredible to think about? I think there's two things we can learn from Jesus' hymn at the end of Passover. When faced with something scary coming down the path towards us, there's two things I think this verse teaches us to do. Number one, to look to Jesus, to look to him as the author and perfecter of our faith, to lean on him, the one who was asleep in the boat, of course, on the Sea of Galilee. In the midst of the storm, he was asleep. We look to Jesus. But number two, to do the right thing in the moment. Do the right thing now. Do the next thing. I think that, I don't know about you, but when I feel anxious and frightened about something, it's a real fight for me to pull myself back into the moment. Anybody recognize that kind of feeling? When there's something coming up ahead, I find it so hard to just focus on the now. Like, what's the best thing to do now? I find it hard to focus. But Jesus did the right thing in the now. He sang the hymns. He wasn't busy worrying about what was coming. He did the right thing in the moment, which was to honor God to sing a song of praise to his Father. As I say, we know, we know the words that Jesus actually sang, and they're, they're heavy with prophetic relevance. They speak actually very clearly about him. He was singing about himself. 
And I also want to say this. Think about what he did. Think about what he did. He sung. He sung before his hour of trial. Singing isn't something that you can do without a measure of engagement. That's why before service, we'll finish our prayer time with a song. Because it takes you out of yourself and it brings you into this moment where you're unified around truth with your brothers and your sisters in Christ. We'll sing from Lamentations 3. We sing, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. We sing that every Sunday before service. And it centers you. And there's almost a sacrifice in singing, isn't there? There's a sacrifice in it. We, we come out of the moment. We declare this praise together. Jesus sang. There was joy in his heart before his moment of suffering. I want you to consider that. The power of singing truth to the Lord in a moment of trial. But he sang Psalm 115 to 180. I encourage you to go and look at those psalms during the week. But Psalm 118 has perhaps the most quoted Old Testament verse in the, in the whole of the New Testament. Psalm 118, 22 to 24 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's the most quoted verse in the New Testament, from the Old Testament. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What was the day that Jesus was talking about? The day of days. The day of his crucifixion. Jesus says this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Doesn't the book of Hebrews tell us that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him? Gives us an insight into Jesus' heart just in the moments prior to his crucifixion. Christ is, of course, the cornerstone. It's what he calls himself. He reminds us of that in Matthew 21. He is the cornerstone that the builders have rejected. Matthew 21, 44, Jesus says, The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Very serious words spoken to the rulers of the day who did reject him. It's a stark warning. You see, the gospel is also a warning message as well as a piece of good news, a promise. It's also a warning. It's a warning to those who reject Christ as much as it is a promise of good things to those who accept him. Christ says, I am the cornerstone. I will either save you or I will crush you. It's the one part of the gospel that we don't always like to talk about, is it? Jesus said this about himself. Beware, lest you build your life on me, I will crush you. When Jesus comes back, he isn't coming back any longer as a baby. He's not coming back 
as a carpenter. He's coming back in judgment. He's coming back to set up his kingdom. And when he does, there will no longer be any time for people to say, oh, I see now that I was wrong. I'm sorry. When he's back, it's going to be too late for that. And I think we need to remember this sobering side of what Christ said about himself as well as the promises that he gave to us. We can either choose to stand on that cornerstone, to stand on Jesus Christ as our foundation, as our rock of salvation, or we're choosing to be crushed by him. It's a sobering message, but it's one that's right there that Jesus gives to us. So what are you choosing to do with the cornerstone today? Is he your rock of salvation? Is he the one on whom you stand? We read a story in Matthew 7 that Jesus told about two men. You know the story, don't you? The two men who built their houses on differing foundations. He says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Who's the rock? And who are those who build their house upon him? Did you catch that? They are those who hear the words of Christ and what? Those who do them. Not those who just hear the words, but those who hear and do the words of Jesus. Those are those who are building their house on the rock. And then the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Did you hear that? The Christian who builds their house upon the rock of Jesus Christ, the person who hears the word of Jesus, but also does and lives the word of Jesus, they will build their house upon the rock. But what's more is, Jesus said that winds will come. Winds will come and beat upon that house. Jesus says rains will fall upon that house. He says that floods will come upon that house and beat upon it. Don't ever ever let anybody tell you that the Christian life is just one of prosperity and freedom from all trials. Jesus promised that rains will come, that wind will blow, that floods will come, but the house will not be destroyed because it's founded upon the rock. It will not fail. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The same things happened. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, but it fell. And great was the fall of it. I don't know how many of you have encountered people in the church who have built actually on the sand and not on the rock. They've heard the word of Jesus, but they built on the rock of their own abilities. They built on the rock of delights of the world, of the pleasures of success, of all the promises that this world has for us. 
And then when trials came, their faith founded. Where is God in suffering? How could God, if he loves me, allow this thing to happen? I've seen it time and time again. I don't know about you, but people who were what they call fair weather Christians. When all was well, they were in the front row singing, praising God, giving him glory. But when the winds came and the rain fell and the floods came, they were gone. Do not just hear the words of Jesus, beloved. Do the words of Jesus. Live the words of Jesus. Make it your foundation. Put your faith upon him. Put him under your feet. Let him be your assurance. Let him be the rock of your salvation. When trials come, you don't look within. You don't look without. You look to him. Does that make sense? Jesus is the foundation upon which we're meant to build. Not our own abilities not the people around us, not our own successes or whatever else we may choose to build upon. But Christ and Christ alone is to be our foundation. And then when those things come, and come they will, the house will not fall. Now Jesus tells us that all of his disciples will fall away. And he uses a quote from the Old Testament. He uses a quote from the book of Zechariah, which is, right towards the end of the Old Testament. And it's a book that is laden with prophecy about Christ himself. In fact, from chapters 9 to 14 of the book of Zechariah, there are tons of passages that do relate to Jesus. You know the one that we always read at Christmas, Behold, coming on a donkey. You know that one? Riding on a colt. That's from Zechariah 9. And Jesus quotes from the 13th chapter of Zechariah. He says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. You know that, what he says there in Mark 14. Well, Zechariah 13, 7, let me read it to you. Awake, O sword, awake against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now that is the Lord speaking. The Lord is the one saying, Awake, O sword. That's him, that's his voice. Saying, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me. Now interestingly, the man who stands next to me is translated slightly differently in the Christian Standard Bible. It says, Against the man who is my associate. Or in the KJV, Against my fellow. Or the New Living Translation, against the man who is my partner. In fact, in the Hebrew, the sense is against the strong man who is with me. So this is a shepherd that is of God who is being struck with the sword. This is a man who is not just any ordinary man. This is a man of renown, a man of strength who is actually with God the Father, who is stood with him, who is in a sense God's very associate. Do you know what this reminds me of? John 1.1. The words remind me of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, sorry, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Reminds me of the same kind of language. And who is it in Zechariah who is striking the shepherd? Who is it who is actually striking this man of God who is with God, who is associate with God the Father? Well, Jesus tells us it was actually the Father who smote 
the shepherd with his sword. Jesus is the one who adds the first person pronoun. I will strike the shepherd. In fact, in Zechariah, it's a passive verb. Jesus adds the first person pronoun. I will strike the shepherd because he's looking at the wider context. It was God who struck this shepherd. The language again reminds us of the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. Verses 4, 5, and 10, if you you just let me read this to you. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Now we don't really use that word anymore. Smitten means struck. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And then verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There are men in these days like Steve Chalk, a once faithful man, men like Brian Zand, another very popular author, or men like the author of the book The Shack, William P. Young. They mock the idea that God the Father struck his own son. They balk at it. They call it a barbaric doctrine. They call it cosmic child abuse. But I want to show you, I hope I have showed you, that this is a doctrine that is in your Bible. It is in the Old Testament. It is in the New Testament. Let me read to you Acts 4, 27 and 28. Peter says, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I wonder, what did Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel do to Jesus in the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? Were they good things? Lovely things, weren't they? What the Gentiles and the Jews did to Jesus? No. They beat him. They mocked him. They crucified him. They killed him. And what does Peter say? All of those things were planned and predestined to take place by God the Father. It was God who crucified Christ on your behalf. Without his plan and his predestined ordering of all things, those events would not have taken place. Yes, the sinful men did it too. And they will be accountable for their actions but we can't flatten everything out because we're worried about somebody getting the idea of God wrong this is what so often happens we're worried about being God's PR agents we can't let the world think that God's a meanie no God God had nothing to do with Jesus's crucifixion the father would never do that he's all love and yes that's true god is love 1 john 4:16 but that doesn't mean you get to erase with a tipex pen all the bits of scripture that say that god foreordained the suffering of christ foreordained the crucifixion 
And you can't erase the bit that says that those who did the crucifixion will still be held accountable for it. Those are two truths that are both attested by the Scriptures. We do not get to flatten them out in order to make ourselves or other people feel more comfortable. In the Old Testament, the sword of the Lord is a sword of judgment. It's a sword that brings justice, that executes justice upon those who deserve it. Now why would the Father's sword of judgment fall upon His own Son? Why would God's sword of justice fall upon the one who had lived a life without sin and who was well-pleasing in the Father's sight? How could the judgment sword of God fall upon His own perfect Son? We read the answer in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, 21. For our sake, He made Him, that is, the Father made the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you know that if you're in Christ today, you are considered the righteousness of God. How perfect and pure is that righteousness? Is that a righteousness that can ever be besmirched or become unrighteousness? No, it's perfect, it's pure. It cannot be solid. You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So why was it that the Father's sword of judgment smote the perfect Son? It was because at that moment He was bearing your sins. He in a sense had become your sins. And therefore He deserved that judgment in the moment. That sword ought to have been yours. That sword ought to have fallen on your neck and my neck. And were it not for Jesus Christ, that would be your destiny and my destiny. But now today, if you believe in Christ, if you have trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, then now, because that sword fell upon your sins 2,000 years ago, it can no longer fall on you in the future. Charles Spurgeon said, my theology is found in four little words. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. Can you say that today? Jesus prophesied that his sheep would be scattered, that they would fall away, but note, they wouldn't stop being his sheep. Did you catch that? That's what Zeph Zechariah says. They, they fall away, but they don't, like Judas, they don't stop being his sheep. In fact, Judas was never a sheep in the first place. He only appeared to be one. But these disciples, Peter, who denied him three times, and all the others who fled at his moment of need, do not stop being sheep. Another of my favorite quotes that just encourages me Every day is from A.W. Pink. It says, He foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, yet nevertheless he fixed his heart upon me. And Jesus promised to them 
all those who were about to betray him. He promised that he was going to rise from the grave and go ahead and meet them in Galilee. An incredible fact. People say, oh, the resurrection's not in the Gospel of Mark. Oh, yes, it is. It's right here. Jesus promised, I will rise again. I'll meet you in Galilee. An incredible proclamation of his own resurrection. But Peter, if you watch, he doesn't even respond to that. It's like he doesn't hear it. He says, oh, Jesus, I'll never betray you. But Jesus has just said, I'm going to rise from the dead. Peter goes, enough with that. I won't betray you. Hubris. An excessive pride or self-confidence, I believe, is perhaps the single most common reason why people miss out on what God's saying to them. A self-interest, a self-interested heart will miss out on what God is saying. Just like Peter missed out on what Jesus literally just said to him about rising from the dead because he was too interested in defending himself, defending his honour caused him to miss out on what Jesus was saying completely and you too if you live a life of self-interest constantly worried about how people think about you what do people think do they think I'm a good person do they think I'm a brave person do they think I'm a kind person do they think I'm a successful person if we constantly are thinking about ourselves we'll miss out on what God's word is trying to say to us they missed it It's an encouragement for us there, isn't it? To be attentive to God's word, to not worry too much about our own success or about our own honour, but look instead, what is God's word saying to me? It's common for pastors to kind of make a bit of a joke about Peter as being a little bit kind of wild and excessive and silly and stupid. We're a lot more like Peter than we like to think. We're very often too concerned with people's opinions of us. We're very often too concerned about self-expression, about making sure that people get us, and we're hurt when they don't get us. Believe you me, I'm exactly the same. But there's a danger in being too obsessed with how people understand us, and we actually end up missing what God's got for us in the moment. And I don't think Peter was lying. I don't think Peter was being dishonest when he said, I won't fall away. I think he really thought that he would stand by Jesus. And it was his sword, wasn't it, in the Garden of Gethsemane just an hour or so later that was drawn and that cut off Malchus's ear trying to defend Jesus. I think Peter really thought that he could stand with Jesus. I don't think he's being dishonest. But as we said, conviction isn't the same as actual obedience. And it's wise for us not to write... It's wise for us not to write checks with our mouths that we can't cash with our hearts. We don't know the future. We don't know, ultimately, how we're going to respond in a given situation. And so instead of making bold proclamations like Peter, it would have been better if we just say, Lord, pray for me. Lord, I don't know what's coming this week, but give me strength. Lord, my heart is wavering this week. Hold me up. Let our confidence be in him and not in ourselves is all I'm saying. Jesus gives us great assurance that we can trust that he is for us and not against us. To finish with, in Luke's gospel, he says to Peter, 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he would sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. What was it that stopped Peter from becoming just like Judas? Was it the strength of his character? Was it the audacity of his faith? No. It was the very fact that he was in Christ's prayers. Robert Murray McShane, Scottish theologian and Bible teacher, said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He is praying for me. Jesus promised us that he is praying for all who belong to him. He said in John 17, at this very same Lord's Supper, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you've given me, for they are yours. And in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's you. You are in the Bible. If you believe in Jesus today, he's promising to pray for you right here. Be assured, if Christ is praying for you, how can you fail? Will Christ's prayers get answered? I believe they will. We can have confidence in him. Let's stand together. I invite the worship team to come.